Welcome to See You on the Other Side, where the world of the mysterious collides with the world of entertainment. A discussion of art, music, movies, spirituality, the weird, and self-discovery. And now, your hosts, musicians and entertainers who have their own weakness for the weird, Mike and Wendy from the band Sunspot. Hello, listener. Welcome back. I hope you had a great week since we last got together here. I'm not going to talk too long here because once again, Mike's got a really great interview for you. And uh, the gentleman that he talks to is not only incredibly interesting and intelligent, but he's also got a great accent. So I enjoyed every aspect of this interview. But first, just a quick announcement. It's episode 60 already here, and I don't know if you remember because it was 10 episodes ago, which means basically 10 weeks ago, it was episode 50, and we had a little contest where we asked you if you would tweet your favorite episode along with the hashtag OtherSide50. And of the responses that we got, we drew a couple that are now prize winners. So I just wanted to congratulate the two winners that we have here, and that would be Amphibaman, whose favorite episode was episode 43, and that was Bigfoot and Aliens and Ghosts Oh My, behind the scenes at Milwaukee Paranormal Conference 2015, which also I think was one of my favorite episodes because it was just a lot of fun meeting people and talking with friends that are in the same scene. So congratulations, Amphibaman, and thank you for sharing that. And our other winner is John Dreisga, who whose favorite episode was episode 26, How the Occult Saved Rock and Roll, an interview with Peter Biebergal. So congratulations, guys. I will be sending you a Sunspot t-shirt and the brand new Sunspot CD, Weirdest Hits, which is 18 tracks of songs that uh, many of which were inspired by this very podcast and the discussions we have in it. So you guys will be receiving a message from us on Twitter and uh, we'll get your addresses and send you those goodies out. So thanks again for listening. And we are approaching our one year anniversary. So we'll probably have another chance for some prizes coming up real soon here. But that's enough about that. It's time for the interview. I'm going to hand off the podcast to Mike and Robbie Graham. We are with author Robbie Graham, who's just come out with a brand new book, Silver Screen Saucers, and he's joining us today from Surrey in the United Kingdom. How are you doing today, Robbie? Hey, I'm good, thanks. Uh, it's good to be with you, and I'm uh, yeah, looking forward to, to getting into this. Absolutely, absolutely. Okay, so Silver Screen Saucers is about the connection between cinema and and UFO phenomena. So for a paranormal and pop culture podcast, this is just about the perfect topic for us. But uh, Robbie, what mm. got you interested in that kind of stuff in, in the first place? Well, I've, like many people, um, had a long-standing fascination with all things weird and wonderful, and this dates back to my childhood, not from personal experience, just through, um, just through, uh, I guess, natural curiosity. And so I was, from an early age, interested in things like ghosts and cryptozoology, and um, but only in a passing way. And then uh, I kind of got interested in UFOs in my teens, about 14, 15 years old. And then by my early 20s, I'd become, like so many people do with, with UFOs, obsessed because it's that kind of a subject. It, it invites obsession. And, um, of course, life got in the way and I was doing other things then. Um, uh, by this point, I started to do film studies at an uh, academic level. And so that was the other passion of my life. And um, so UFOs always kind of got put on the back burner. And, uh, yeah, I just continued to progress with my academic studies in, in film and media. And then in my uh, mid to late 20s, I decided finally that I should merge these two interests. And I started to write a little bit about um, cinema and UFOs. And so my research for what would become Silver Screen Sources really started around nine years ago. And the writing process actually began around seven years ago. So it's been a long process to get this book together. Yeah, I guess. I'm a film major too, or was a film major, you know, when I was in college a thousand years ago. So um, what were your favorite kind of movies? What inspired, Did you want to make movies or just were you interested in just being a critic and, and writing about film and film theory? I think for a time I was, I, I you know, I, I liked the idea of being the next Steven Spielberg. Okay. And, uh, oh, Close Encounters uh, of the Third Kind right there. I mean, that's... 
Of course, yeah, yeah, Mr. UFO Spielberg, and um, and so yeah, I mean, I made a few short student movies and all that kind of stuff, and I, I, I you know, went to the New York Film Academy and all that kind of stuff, and I, I thought about maybe going into the practical side of filmmaking, but ultimately I realized that I was better writing about films than making them, and uh, so so yeah, it was the theory side of it really appealed to me, the, the analytical side of it. All right. So it took, you know, seven years to write this book. Mm. How was the research process of it? Because you, you took time to work on it. And, and what did you do to get into for the research of it? Well, there's not a lot. I mean, to date, there's only been two previous books that have been written, which have been dedicated exclusively to the exploration of the interplay between UFOs and Hollywood. And those were both written in the late 1990s. Since then, there's been no book devoted exclusively to, to looking at UFOs in Hollywood, although many books and many researchers have talked about Hollywood. Um, but it's been largely speculative, and people don't really, you know, what, what I found quite quickly was that, you know, when I started writing the book, I thought, oh, it's someone else is going to churn out another book on this subject before I can finish this because surely there must be dozens of people working on books about UFOs in Hollywood because it seems such a natural subject to explore because um, the two seem to be inseparable really and I realized that you know it's easier said than done to write a book on this subject because it requires a detailed knowledge of the history of, uh, of the UFO phenomenon and ufology the the field that studies it, but also it it, um, it it requires a detailed understanding of the cinema industry, how 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 the cinema industry works, how it operates, and the history of of uh, government involvement in in the uh, industry of propaganda, mm-hmm. um, history of the science fiction genre, uh, the evolution of the genre, and so it was a it, well it started actually it began as a PhD in two thousand and nine. Um, I'd already started writing articles in the subject in about 2007 it wasn't in 2000 till, until 2009 that it, I started on a PhD dedicated to this and then it eventually morphed into something more populist um, because you know ultimately I couldn't really do what I wanted to do even though I did three years on the PhD well so you were going to become a, a doctor of UFO movies which sounds yeah. like that sounds like the greatest doctor ever that's almost doctor who level of greatest doctors ever yeah <laughs> Yeah, and ultimately pointless because you know, <laughs> um, uh, yeah, I was. I made the decision ultimately that um, that it wasn't the right road for me, and uh, I'm more of a populist writer than an academic one. Um, although I was, you know, I suppose good enough to have got to the stage that I'd got with it, and I was getting support from my supervisors. Although initially they'd been uh, resistant to the idea, understandably, because academia is not. Um, uh, is not sympathetic to, to, to any weird field, especially UFOs. No, not anymore. From the outset, I'd stated in my proposal that, um, that this was not going to be some abstract uh, cultural PhD wherein I talk about UFOs purely as a um, product of audience culture. I was stating from the outset that you know, this, this is going to take the position that UFOs, whatever they are, are genuinely anomalous and that there is a real mystery underlying this phenomenon and that governments around the world take the subject very seriously and um, and that you know so I'm going to address this as, as something that's that's tangible and um, that provoked some um, resistance but ultimately they they did support me in it and uh, but after a while I just decided that I didn't need to do the PhD to, to, to do the uh, to do the book because the book was the ultimate goal mm-hmm. and uh, I left my the, I left my previous job, which was a college lecturer in media, um, to do the PhD, and uh, because I thought that, that doing the PhD was a good out, it was a good kind of a legitimate escape route from the job that I was finding boring at the time. Yeah, sure. In order to in order to pursue the dream of doing um, you know, of exploring UFOs in Hollywood in a, in a kind of a legitimate way, and uh, so the goal was a book, and I thought, well, the PhD is a good route to, to a book, but. Um, Around two years into the PhD, um, a Hollywood producer called Bryce Zabel, um, who was the creator of the 1990s TV show called Dark Skies. Oh, I used to, 
Used to love that show. I mean, wasn't Art Bell even on Dark Skies? For like, didn't he? Wasn't he a character for a um, yeah a cameo? Yeah, it drew, it drew extensively from from uh, UFO literature and debate because Bryce Zabel was um, and is a, a UFO believer, for lack of a better word. Uh, he's um, he's been fascinated by the subject for, for many years, and he kind of tried to incorporate every aspect of UFO mythology into that series. Uh, anyway, uh, I met Bryce in um, 2011, and uh, he proposed that that we write a book together on this subject. So we we started to, to explore that idea and eventually Bryce just sort of stepped back and said, look, you go ahead and, and write this. And he would write the forward for the book, which is what's, which is what's happened. It would, I kind of, you know, the idea was that it would work better with one voice rather than two. Um, because so, you know, Bryce has worked within the industry, but I'm looking at it from the outside. And so we mm-hmm. had kind of quite different perspectives on, on the industry itself as well. I'm quite critical of Hollywood. Um, I love Hollywood. I mean, I love I love what it puts out. I mean, well, not all of it by by a long shot. But, <laughs> right, um, right. No, absolutely. I love, I, I love Hollywood, you know, but uh, but there's plenty to criticize. Well, that, I mean, that's probably a good position to start with when we talk about your book. When you say that there's plenty to criticize, so what mm. do you think? Uh, what do you, what is the number one thing you think that Hollywood has gotten wrong about UFO? visitations or you know you have or when they take a, a based on true events kind of story what do you think the number one thing they got wrong in? um well generally speaking i mean first of all it's important to state that there is a a preconception or a myth um that the ufo phenomenon ufo culture has been sprung from and feeds off um ufo movies and ufo entertainment media whereas in actual fact it's 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 largely the reverse. It's, it's vice versa. What happens is the, pre, the UFO phenomenon, whatever it represents, predates entertainment media depictions of it. And uh, so, you know, the, the, the phenomenon as we know it today in its modern form began in 1947. And then Hollywood engaged with the phenomenon in sort of 1949, 1950. Um, and then, you know, what happened was you had stories, um, UFO stories that, that, that came out from witnesses. Basically, you had grassroots reports from people around the world particularly in the United States. And Hollywood caught on to this and saw, they recognized that this was a growing cultural hysteria. It was also political hysteria as well. It was treated very seriously behind the scenes in the U.S. government in the Cold War and, and beyond. Sure, because it, be, it could have been Russian spy planes or something like that. Right, but also, I mean, even as early as 1948, the Air Force had concluded in its um, first study for Project Sign, which was an official, uh, official UFO project called Project Sign, which would later become Blue Book, they concluded as early as 1948 that the, um, the phenomenon was actually probably interplanetary, and that's, that's their term, in, in nature. Uh, this report so alarmed the chief of the Air Force, um, Hoyt Vandenberg, that uh, he ordered all copies burned. And uh, because he didn't want, didn't want that to be the official position of the Air Force, a few copies survived, which were seen by the um, uh, the head of the the project, um, a guy called Edward uh, Rupelt, and uh, he he publicised this in in his um, first book in 1956-55. So this was this was something that was you know really freaking people out behind the scenes. Um, people were reporting objects which, which were moving at incredible speeds and performing impossible aerial maneuvers and yeah so there were theories is it soviet is it some kind of weird natural phenomena is it extraterrestrial these are all questions that were being asked and so beginning in sort of 1953 the cia recommended that the national security apparatus begin an effort to debunk and demystify ufos through media channels uh entertainment media should be exploited to basically manage perceptions of the phenomenon Um, okay so this started to be enacted throughout the Cold War, and there's some evidence to suggest that some of these recommendations were acted upon in the 50s and 60s, and then it starts to get more speculative as to as to where that agenda went. Um, but certainly there is there's concrete evidence to show that right from the get-go, the CIA and the Air Force in particular viewed Hollywood as the perfect um, conduit through which to, to manage and manipulate popular perceptions of a phenomenon that was of grave concern to them. To spread disinformation. To spread disinformation, uh, you know, it encompasses, I, 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 the term I use is, is perception management because it, it encompasses disinformation and propaganda. Um, the initial goal of it, according to the CIA, was was to, to de- debunk and demystify, to get people not to believe in this subject at all. But as I've said elsewhere, I think that 
very quickly they realized that it was impossible to completely debunk and demystify a phenomenon that continued to manifest itself spectacularly around the world. And if people are continuing to see these things, then you can't really convince people that they don't exist. So what you can do is you can attempt to manage how people perceive the phenomenon. So I think that there have been some very sophisticated efforts um, put into play over the years along those lines, and I explore those in, in the book. I mean, the book is kind of two-pronged. It's, uh, it's both cultural and conspiratorial. Um, so I, I do look at the historical evidence for involvement in these movies in an official capacity and monitoring of them and manipulation of them, um, which is limited. It's not extensive. It's limited. By and large, this is a, a natural cultural phenomenon. Hollywood's engagement and obsession with UFOs um, dating back to the 50s is a natural cultural process. Um, you know, people have always been fascinated by the idea of life in the universe. Are we alone? It's one of the right. oldest questions, you know, um, the oldest philosophical questions. And I think ultimately the appeal of these movies is that they visualize, they contextualize, and they narrativize a subject, you know, an idea that's otherwise hard, if not impossible, to comprehend. You know, the idea of alien life and visitation is a weighty one, but through cinema, it's simplified and through genre, you know, through genre conventions. And I, I guess ultimately it's made digestible and, um, and enjoyable. And that's why Hollywood continues to make these movies. Well, what would you what would you say would be the first flying saucer film, the first UFO movie? The first UFO movie, uh, uh, the first UFO movie uh, uh, released theatrically was in 1950, and that was called The Flying Saucer. It was you know shameless cashing on the growing hysteria, the, the growing flying saucer hysteria that had begun in 1947. It was a low budget movie, and. Uh, Right away, this film attracted the attention of the Air Force. Um, the director, a guy called Mikhail Conrad, had stated publicly to press that he had footage of a real flying saucer that he was using in his movie. And the Air Force, <laughs> of, yeah, the Air Force Office of Special Investigations immediately opened a file on him, and they did an investigation into him. And they sent one of their officers to actually attend the premiere of his movie just in case there was a real UFO in there. And then afterwards, they debriefed him and basically double-checked that he didn't really have this footage. And of course, it turned out that he didn't have this footage. It was just a marketing scam to kind of you know, make him more... Right, get people out. There's real footage of a UFO, and the only place you're going to see it is if you go see the flying saucer. But but this established right from you know from, from the beginning this uh, this interest in Hollywood on the part of um, uh, interest in saucer movies rather on the part of uh, officialdom and this is something that continued right throughout the fifties sixties seventies eighties and right up to the present day in fact I mean you still got the, the you know the Transformers movies Battleship Battle Los Angeles all of these films received actually full military cooperation and what that means is that they have access to the script in a big, big way creatively. Mm -hmm. They can actually shape the content of these scripts. They can write dialogue. They can create story arcs. Um, and uh, in return, they give, you know, they, in return for this creative freedom, they give the filmmakers access to their hardware, their, uh, their technology and their advice. And so it's this, uh, this kind of symbiotic relationship between Hollywood and the Pentagon, which has gone back for many decades now, but which has intensified over the years. And Well, a lot of the directors, I mean, when you think about a lot of the directors in the 1950s, they had been in the service, like even guys like John Huston and stuff had been in the service of the military during the Second World War, producing right. documentaries for the U.S. Army. Exactly. So it was not at all unusual for for um, many filmmakers during during the 50s, 60s, and beyond to to have had military backgrounds. And that's actually interesting in relation to the 1951 film, The Day the Earth Stood Still. Um, this was actually the first movie, really. This is the, this is the first big budget glossy studio product to deal with UFOs um, and it was one of the only such products of its time. Most UFO movies throughout the Cold War were, were low budget B-movies and they were kind of schlocky products aimed at teens at the drive-in. Mm -hmm. um, this was a serious piece of filmmaking from director Robert Wise and it had the full support of Daryl Zanuck who was the head of 20th Century Fox. Zanuck was himself in the Army Signal Corps during the war as was the screenwriter for The Day the Earth Stood Still, a guy called Edmund North and so was the producer Julian Blaustein. So they all had military backgrounds and uh, all propagandist backgrounds specifically within sure. the military. They all worked within the propaganda corps. And um, Zanuck also, at the time of the Daily Earth Stood Still's production, was actually also a CIA asset. 
he was um, close friends with um, a guy called C.D. Jackson, Charles Douglas Jackson, who was the government's chief propagandist at the time. And so they had intimate relationships and Jackson had actually referred to Zanuck publicly or privately rather, it later became public, as one of a group of um, friends, including Walt Disney and Jack Warner, who the government could rely upon to insert into their scripts um, the, the right ideas with the proper, proper subtlety when called upon. So Hollywood was used as a conduit by the CIA, going back to the 50s, this is very well documented, to manage perceptions, not of UFOs specifically, and indeed there's no, there's no evidence on paper relating to UFOs in the 1950s um, where Hollywood is concerned. Sure. But, but there is concrete proof that uh, Warner Brothers, for example, uh, excuse me, Paramount Studios, that the head of censorship at Paramount Studios in the 1950s was a guy called Luigi Larashi, and he was a CIA asset, and he was literally working for the CIA and uh, on their payroll, and uh, they they would request that he make changes um, or recommendations for changes in studio products from Paramount Studios throughout the 1950s, and he did so routinely um, to manage public perceptions of hot-button national security issues, of policy issues, race relations, colonial history, etc., etc. So the thing is, is that you know if these changes were being made over such you know mundane things, like right, relatively right. mundane, then you would have thought that these such efforts would extend to the national security issue um, of UFOs. And undoubtedly they did, and there is circumstantial evidence to show that they did. Um, so, yeah, so The Daily Estes Still was an interesting one, and there's been rumours for years about whether or not this film acted as a CIA acclamation project to the idea of UFO reality, and there's no, there's no, there's no concrete proof, it's just circumstantial evidence. Um, there are a number of films over the years from the government angle that you can point to conclusively and say we know for sure that this branch of the military was involved in that film and made these changes to it uh, and the result was you know a b or c and uh, there are some very interesting examples spanning the decades let's get a couple of those examples because when you said the day the earth stood still that would be i mean that's i kind of think of the first thoughtful at least ufo visitors from outer space kind of movie because it's not low budget schlock i mean you look at it now and you're like okay some things are pretty cheesy and stuff like that but it's it's still a great movie i mean robert wise obviously directed a ton of great you know genre films over the years from the haunting to star trek and uh but you think of the day the earth stood still and you would not think that be a necessarily uh have any kind of um relationship when you talk about the guys the producer and being military uh daryl zanuck and stuff because it seems to be such a anti not necessarily military but it's definitely an anti-war film yeah and this is this is very unusual of course um but actually the the script notes i mean you can look at i mean that that's one of the main that's one of the main um ways that cultural critics engage with the daily estate still for example they, they look at it um in terms of its political commentary and that's how most and that's valid of course sure. and that's how most um cultural critics engage with with ufo movies or sci-fi movies of the 50s they look at them as as communist allegory as political commentary and indeed they were but what almost all cultural critics overlook when analyzing these 1950s sci-fi specifically flying saucer movies is the the most blatant inspiration for the movies which was not communism but flying saucers you know so this is this is this is absent from most from most film analyses of these of these um of this genre uh i i guess that's a good way to that's a good way to put it too because you know they do make the alien sympathetic in the day of the earth is still and if you guys at home if you haven't seen the day of the earth is still yet do not bother with the Keanu Reeves version it's not that bad but just <laughs> go go back to the 1950 1951 version and also um, a little trivia that's Bruce Campbell when he says Klaatu Verata Nikto and Army of Darkness that's where it comes from the day of the earth is still because the name of the killer alien robot is Klaatu so anyway if you're playing along at home um, as soon as you're done with this podcast, jump on Netflix and check it out. Yeah, the alien is the alien is uh, is Clatu. Uh, the robot is Gort. Okay, okay, sorry. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. But no, it's a great film, and it's um, it it really lives up to repeat viewings, and, and it, it it's fascinating ufologically because you've got parallels with 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 UFO reports and and, and later contactee reports. So you know 
you had a, a ufological movement, I guess, throughout the 1950s and 60s, called, uh, referred to as the contactee movement, which involved people like George Adamski and uh, Howard Menger and others who claimed frequent intimate contact with races of human-looking, beautiful space beings uh, who espoused messages of peace and love and anti-nuke. Uh, you know, they were they were uh, nuke intolerant beings uh, who were worried about the state of mankind and issued warnings. And so this is they were very much like Klaatu from the day the Earth stood still. And uh, you know, the technology that that these contactees reported. Um, the aliens had were these sleek looking flying saucers which emitted a uniform glow which people have associated with ionized air based on propulsion systems all this kind of stuff this has emerged in later years in, in ufology sure um, but, but all of these details are there in the movie you know um this was the first film to depict a flying saucer as reported by witnesses basically something that was simple sleek that was not some clunky looking contraption um, as appeared in the first Flying Saucer movie from, from 1950, for example. This film seemed to be right on the money with its ufological detail. And these are, this is why it continues to be the subject of speculation in the UFO community. You know, was it seeded with inside information to acclimate people, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, so there's no, there's no solid answers to that to those questions. But there is circumstantial evidence which continues to, to fuel debate. Um, there are some other interesting, far more concrete cases uh, so, for example, in 1971, a filmmaker in the U.S. called Robert Emmenegger, a documentarian, who was formerly the creative director at Grey Advertising. Um, so, he, so if, uh, if anyone's seen the TV show Mad Men, um, oh, yeah. with Don, Don Draper uh, in, in that in that show as creative director of um, whatever I can't even remember the name of their right Sterling uh, Sterling Price Sterling Cooper, Cooper Draper. Right. You know, they have the whole right. they go through several right. different uh, several different name changes. So Emmenegger, Robert Emmenegger, was the creative director at Grey Advertising, which is actually mentioned in Mad Men. So he was the real-life Don Draper. <laughs> awesome. A man of, of considerable influence. Probably um, drank less. Yeah, with lots of... Well, actually, he said he told me that watching, uh, that watching Mad Men was actually like watching his life throughout, <laughs> you know. But he said he except he could never remember drinking that much. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> But he was, he was a guy who was approached, so he later became a documentarian, and he was approached through his production partner, a guy called Alan Sandler, who had CIA connections and FBI connections. This guy brought to him a project, a project from the Air Force, and the Air Force wanted their assistance in making a documentary about UFOs, a serious documentary about UFOs. And they said that, look, we're, we're actually going to furnish you with real UFO footage, not only real UFO footage, but alien landing footage. Mm. shot at Holloman Air Force Base by the Air Force, filmed sometime in the, in the early 70s, late 60s, and it depicts alien beings exiting a craft and meeting with delegates of the U.S. government and going away into some hangar somewhere. And Emmenegger had no interest in UFOs, and he was very skeptical about this. And they said, look, the, the footage is real, and we're going to give it to you. And so what happened was the Air Force and every branch of the U.S. military, in fact, and NASA opened their doors to... Emmenegger and Sandler and these guys had carte blanche to go anywhere they want and they they for months they had access to these air force bases to Norton Air Force Base and Holloman Air Force Base very sensitive air force bases in America yeah. uh, and they had sit down interviews with all of the heads of the Air Force's Project Blue Book the UFO study project um, they met with generals and colonels and uh, it was it was bizarre and <laughs> all the while this footage was being dangled over them and then at the last minute by the time the movie was ready to be released, which is 1974, the uh, uh, late 73 or sometime in 73, sure. um, the Watergate scandal was starting to, to break. And they said, look, you know, with what's going on politically, we can't actually give you this footage anymore because it's, it's too much for the American public to, to cope with, uh, you know, Nixon and, and aliens. And so, <laughs> so they said, we can't, we can't give it to you. And so Emmenegg was really frustrated. But he said, look, during the production, they were actually shown footage of a UFO flying or kind of darting behind a, a missile that's being shot into space um, from Holloman Air Force Base. Okay. And, and they were shown, you know, they were shown all, sorts of, all sorts of stuff, and they were shown uh, artistic recreations of the uh, artistic drawings of the aliens, you know, based on, on it. And they spoke to people at the base who claimed to have seen the landing, landing footage uh, but they never saw it themselves. And uh, this is just one of a number of examples over the years where f 
footage has been offered to filmmakers by the Air Force and then withdrawn at the last minute. There's at least two or three other cases um, going back go back to the 50s. Why do you think they would do that? Like, I mean, what would be the impetus behind dangling that on several different occasions or stringing these people along for a little while? Because it sounds like that might be a, a, a disinformation or a managed perception move on its own. Yeah, and here's where we really get into Twilight Zone territory because... <laughs> All right. If we have, if we weren't there already, um, it sounds crazy. That's okay. It's okay. We we don't judge until afterwards. But the only logical conclusion I can draw, and it's, this is not just my conclusion. A number of other people have reached this conclusion before sure. me, and have done very good research on, along these lines. And one of those guys is Mark Pilkington, who made a good documentary called Mirage Man, looking at this whole disinformation angle regarding UFOs. Um, but my position is that. Ultimately, that there is a, a there's a genuinely kind of strange, mystifying phenomenon underlying UFOs. That despite the many many decades of research, private research um, on the part of various government branches into this subject, no solid conclusions have been drawn, um, and that the phenomenon ultimately defies understanding. And therefore, you can never really really publicly release something that you don't fully understand, because all you're releasing is ignorance. Right, the fact that you don't know anything is probably scarier than that you'd be covering up something that right. you do know. Now, this is not to say that they don't have serious interest and they don't have some ideas. They may well, they, I'm sure they do. I'm sure they have theories and ideas, but then that's not proof. Um, I'm, I think the phenomenon continues to elude um, private science as it does um, public science and, and, and UFO believers everywhere. And uh, so, again, it, it relates to perception management. The phenomenon persists. And people can, and public interest in it continues to persist. People are intent on believing in in the idea of a grand UFO conspiracy that the government has been hiding information, which to an extent it certainly has. I mean, this is documented. You know, I mean, in the early years they denied any interest or, or knowledge at all, and then of course when the Freedom of Information Act kicked in, tens, hundreds of thousands of documents have since been released showing that every branch of the government was secretly looking at this for many, many, many years. So there, there has been a, a you know, secrecy, if, whether you want to call that a cover-up is up to you, but there's been high levels of secrecy surrounding the subject and certainly sure. there's been official interest. So, but again, interest and research does not equate to conclusions and, and ultimate knowledge. And so ultimately what you have to do is manage perceptions, not specifically of the phenomenon, but perceptions of your involvement in, in the phenomenon. And so if you can steer this for a psychological warfare purpose, directed not against the American people necessarily, although that can also come into play, but against foreign powers. So in the Cold War, you had a, a, uh, a documentary made in 1988 called UFO Cover-Up Live, which is a completely, this is another one of those cases where you had you know, government involvement in a in a product, in an entertainment product, essentially, um, but it was a documentary, and uh, they seeded this this script with information, and the the whole pro the whole production was really steered by intelligence operatives within the Air Force Office of Special Investigation, and uh, this is very very well documented by by now, and again, this is something that I look at in the book. And uh, what you can trace back a certain core story and mythology to around the early 1980s. And this story that emerges, all traceable back to the Air Force Office of Special, Inter uh, Special Investigations, is this idea that various branches of officialdom have for years had treaties and ongoing based dialogues with UFO intelligences, with aliens, with extraterrestrials, and that they have working relationships with them, they have reverse engineered the technology that they have thousands of you know functioning craft that can get fly to space into mars and and that basically you've got uh an ultra advanced uh, uh kind of faction of, of of officialdom which is in league with with one or more species of aliens now this this idea right. is central to ufo conspiracy culture today but it actually traces back to the early 1980s with the emergence of these so-called majestic 12 documents which have been used in all sorts of pop culture products um, from Dark Skies, The X-Files and, and, and many others. Uh, these leaked documents which are actually fabrications created by the intelligence community to sow ideas into this community about UFOs and official involvement in, 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 in the field. And it creates this false impression of actually 
the powers that be having a really deep understanding of this of this phenomenon. It's, but it's something that can never actually be prove, proven or debated in a, in a serious sphere because it's tainted with the UFO brush because, you know, if, uh, official culture doesn't accept UFO, uh, UFO reality. It doesn't accept that, but well, I mean, official culture doesn't even doesn't even accept the notion of conspiracies as being something that's that, that, right. <laughs> that's a, that's a thing, you know. You know, so so it can never be debated seriously outside of conspiracy culture. So it's no threat to them. But what it does do is it sows particular ideas into conspiracy culture, and the conspiracy culture inevitably bleeds into pop culture, which is what always happens. You know, subculture and fringe culture eventually bleeds into pop culture, and that's especially so with ufology. Because cinema, and cinema has been central to this, cinema has taken ideas from ufology and it's popularized them. So, you know, ideas like Men in Black, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, of the Fourth Kind, Area 51, Roswell, all of these things were part of the common language of ufology mm -hmm. decades before Hollywood lifted them and popularized them. Absolutely. I, and I think the first time I heard of those things, a lot of it was at that UFO cover-up live event because I just looked it up and I realized I watched this when I was like 11 years old okay mm -hmm. <laughs> I'm like oh it's got yeah, it was the guy from MASH is in it and stuff I'm like no yeah. I saw this <laughs> it's completely bizarre watching it because um and the you know so I, I speak to Tracy Torme in the book he's he wrote he was uh, he he's a screenwriter he was actually a producer on the on the show um, he didn't write it, but he was hired to write it and to produce it, but he refused to write it because he was actually on a writer's strike at the time. Um, but he was there from the inside, so he kind of gave his inside perspective of the production of that show. And he said, you know, right from the get-go, this was hijacked, essentially, by Air Force intelligence. And they got wind that, that a show was being produced about UFOs and conspiracies, and the Air Force, they wanted in on this, and it was done through uh, an Air Force intelligence operative um, called Richard Doty, and uh, through his superior, a guy called Harry Rosicki, who was a very senior um, CIA or retired CIA guy, um, and he, he, this was this was something that clearly had been signed off on at a high level. And the goal was to sow ideas into the UFO community uh, and to see how they spread. And this has psychological warfare applications domestically as well as as uh, overseas, because if you can so particular ideas into a manageable small community, a tight-knit community, you can actually see how things are spread, who's spreading things, how they're being spread, etc., etc. So you can you can throw some truth in there if you want, because that's how disinformation works. So there must be some kind of nugget of truth in what they're putting out. You got There's a little bit you can believe, because if there's a little bit you can believe, right. then you can make the leap to the next thing. And I see exactly what you're talking about, because if, if the Ruskies they thought that the United States was in league with these alien superpowers you you, that's, that is precisely it I'm convinced that was the goal uh, and it, now it's extended to other uh, you know enemy foreign powers as well so it's not just Russia now uh, but you know because these are the foreign powers they were at the same time they were investigating UFOs um, secretly as well and there's some document well, there's plenty of documentation to, to show this and some governments are actually very open about the fact of, the, of their historical UFO investigations this is a global phenomenon so it wasn't just restricted to America so certainly Russia was, was looking at this um, secretly for, for decades and they, they'd drawn the same conclusions as America you know this was not American it wasn't some other terrestrial power and it could very well have been extraterrestrial or interdimensional or god knows what it could it was just not human necessarily and these were these were ideas being thrown around so it wouldn't have been a huge leap for certain elements within the russian military for example or other militaries to actually have thought you know maybe the maybe the americans do have crashed spacecraft maybe they do have treaties with aliens maybe we shouldn't mess with these guys because maybe they're super advanced right they've got a death ray that we don't know about Right, and and actually, it becomes far more plausible this theory when you look at the content of UFO Cover Up Live. This was one of the first productions ever to be broadcast simultaneously in America and the Soviet Union. It was broadcast simultaneously in the, in those countries, and it actually has on-screen involvement from Soviet scientists, and they're on the screen. That you know, they're live on screen in in the show, um, and. Mike Farrell, the MASH guy, makes a point of saying, reading from a script, by the way, because literally every line in the show is scripted. Of course. But even though it's live, it's all scripted. And the reason it was scripted was because the producer, Michael Seligman, was so terrified by what he'd been told by Air Force Intelligence that he was convinced that all this is real, that, that, that there was probably an impending alien invasion, and that the government was, you know, it was a very cloak and dagger X-Files stuff. And he was 
spooked really badly. This is according to the producer, Tracy Torme. And he, by this point, Seligman said, look, we know this is supposed to be live, but I don't want anyone saying anything that they're not supposed to say on screen. Right. They, we, we might ruin the treaty between the U.S. and the aliens. <laughs> This is, he, was, he was apparently really freaked out. And, uh, and so watching the show is completely a surreal experience because everyone's reading robotically from a script and pretending to be, you know, naturalistic. So that was a, that, that was a, a, a really important production because it was one of the first, um, it, it was, again, it was a demonstration of how seriously the powers that be essentially um, regard entertainment media and TV and in regard you know, factual or entertainment TV and film uh, they, they recognize these as being hugely important conduits in the dissemination of propaganda and, dis- and disinformation and if you want to control how people perceive anything then you have to control the medium and, uh, and, and that's why they had their hooks in it and that's why the CIA involvement in, in Hollywood goes back to the 1950s and uh, DOD involvement in Hollywood goes back even further uh, and continues to this day. Okay, so now we're coming to, if we come to a more modern era, and that's awesome, you're talking about that UFO cover-up live. I, you know, I love that stuff. That's how I first heard about the Area 51 was, was specials like that that used to run syndicated on the UHF stations when we were kids. In the middle of the U.S. and you didn't have the internet, how would you hear about Area 51 or, or all the stuff that George Knapp Na- uncovered? It's crucial that you mention Area 51 there because, again, that was the first uh, time that Area 51 had ever been mentioned in, in any um, TV or, or film medium. Uh, it was mentioned in text form fleetingly in UFO Cover-Up Live and the idea of naval intelligence being responsible for Area 51 and, and the UFO secrecy was all started to be fed into, into UFO Cover-Up Live and the idea of treaties and aliens and terminology EBE and Majestic 12, all these things were there thrust into this, into this show. And then these things started to become central to ufology in the years uh, that followed and um, a huge distraction essentially for, for UFO research. Um, all of these things were planted by, by Air Force and, and probably CIA. But, um, <clears throat> but Area 51, yeah, that was, that was, you know, so this was 1988 and then Literally, one year later, Lazar, Bob Lazar, the guy who, the whistleblower who, um, who brought Area 51 to the world, essentially, mm-hmm. uh, his story came out uh, less than a year after, after that show. And his employment at the base actually began four months after the broadcast of UFO Corrupt Live. And I'm convinced that the Area 51 story um, was, was part of and it's an extension of this kind of phase two of, of, of this, this whole strategy. And I mean, it sounds very far-fetched, I recognize, but uh, uh, you can eventually put, put pieces together. Uh, and, you know, if that was the goal, and we can't say definitively that it was to create this myth, then right. it's been extremely successful. It's been extremely, extremely successful. Now, again, you know, I want to emphasize to, to any kind of UFO people out there that I'm, I'm not a disbeliever in this phenomenon. I absolutely, I've, I've interviewed enough people um, and researched enough on this topic for, for, for enough years to, to recognize that there's something really profound underlying it. Um, I, I don't draw many conclusions beyond that. And certainly, elements of the government have have been investigating this for many years, and and most and and will have some ideas, their own ideas about what it represents. And but there's no way they can disclose any of this because they don't fully understand it. And so I think holding up a mass disclosure event is, is um, is futile. But uh, but when you talk about Area 51, though, when you talk about Area 51, like to me that feels like they introduced that. No, I mean whether I, after right. after the after the Hangar 18 after the Hangar 18 stuff kind of went stale, like in the 70s, and you have like Hangar 18, and this is where they're doing the research, and this is where they're keeping the the, the flying saucers, and then after that kind of gets old, well, now we got something at Groom Lake in Nevada. Well, you know, if they did have anything, that's where it would be, or that's where it would have been. There's actually places now that there are there are more um, secure and 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 secretive than than Area 51. Um, Area 51 is like the most public. <laughs> most well-known secret place in the world, right? Um, so, but but for a time it was the most secret place, and certainly that's where they would have studied something like that. And, I, and I'm sure they, no one doubts that there are some exotic technologies at Area 51, whether they're man-made or alien, we don't know. But but um, certainly there are exotic technologies out there. That's the whole purpose of the base. But and you know my contention as well is that Lazar Bob Lazar actually did work there, and he was employed there, but he was employed 
unwittingly as a disinformation conduit. He he was there to do a pu- for for a purpose, and and his purpose was to to blow the whistle. Um, mm-hmm. He was shown very very specific things whilst he was there, which were clearly staged for him. Uh, even Lazar is of the opinion that a lot of what he saw there was, or at least some of what he saw there was was um, orchestrated for him, and that they were playing with his head. So it's my contention that Lazar was actually at Area 51. And, and again, there's, there's a lot of evidence to support that fact. Right. But what he saw there was staged for him so that he would blow the whistle and he would put out a story to the world and to, again, to foreign powers that this is indeed what's happening, that there is an intimate relationship, that there is hardware, alien hardware, and that the military has a, has a real deep understanding of this stuff. So this psychological warfare angle to all of this. And that fueled, I mean, this, this fueled all through the 19, all the 1990s conspiracy theories. I Absolutely. Mean, the rise of the and X-Files and Art Bell and Coast to Coast and, and George Knapp, who still does Sundays on Coast to Coast and who's got the greatest radio voice ever, I think. Like all those guys, it fueled careers and like the culture. Yeah, George. I mean, I, I, I um, spent some time with George Knapp uh, last year, and George actually is, endorses my book. And um, I think he's a, a brilliant guy, and he, uh, you know, he he knows Bob Lazar because um, he was the guy. Because George Knapp was the guy was the reporter that, that broke, broke the that story. story. And um, George, again, George Knapp doesn't really draw many conclusions on the Lazar case. He continues to be baffled by it, but is is pretty convinced that Lazar was there and he's telling the truth as he saw it. You know, but the, the truth that he tells is not necessarily the truth, or is certainly not the whole truth. But you know, there's a disinformation angle at play here, and uh, but ultimately, I mean, you can, and you know, the, the temptation with all this kind of stuff is with this kind of intrigue is you can get so bogged down in it that you could write a whole book on it, but get nowhere. So I devote I devote essentially one chapter to this idea of a Hollywood UFO conspiracy. I flag it up a few few other times throughout the book, but essentially I've got one one dedicated chapter to this. The rest of the book is is largely cultural in its focus rather than conspiratorial because I think that's more valuable ultimately. Okay. Uh, uh, because, you know, you have to look at the, the cultural processes involved here and, and how Hollywood, as a, again, how Hollywood draws from um, a subculture, a fringe belief system essentially because, I mean, ufology, although it's, although UFOs are demonstrably, I guess, real for lack of a better word and, um, and they're sprung from our lived historical reality. Well, people have, right, people have real experience. I mean, they have experiences that are real to them. I've known plenty of people that have seen a UFO, right. and whether or not it was an alien or something else, they absolutely believe they saw something that they cannot explain. Right, and some of these experiences are, are you know, quite profound and and uh, and physical. Uh, again, there's, you know, ex- extra, perhaps extraterrestrials is, is, is too simplistic an explanation. But ultimately... Hollywood draws from the debate and the literature and and the subculture and by kind of um, being a parasite towards all of this stuff it actually fictionalizes it but at the same time it actualizes it and this is this paradox this is this dichotomy that I look at uh, and I kind of contextualized within the framework of what I refer to as hyper-reality. This is a, a cultural theory that already exists, but I've applied it to, to UFOs. And it's the notion that consciousness is unable, uh, unable or unwilling to distinguish between something that's real and something that's that's fiction or something that's fantasy. Well, they say that with horror movies, that, you know, that when you watch a horror movie, your lizard brain, I mean, I guess for lack of a better term, uh, doesn't know the difference between you know seeing that in reality and and that's and seeing that in, in fiction and that's why we get those excited feelings when we're watching uh, you know Freddie or Jason carve somebody up mm-hmm. again there's parallels to be drawn there because of course um, you know horror movies ultimately are tapping into an underlying and ancient belief in paranormal phenomena mm-hmm. It's the idea that that, some, that, that that there is something beyond the physical which can affect the physical, and, and that's why horror movies continue to be so popular, albeit again not certainly not with the Academy Awards. <laughs> um, and uh, uh, I'm a huge horror fan, and and yeah, so that's my little dig at dig at the Oscars there for never recognizing <laughs> quality movies. Right. But the thing with UFOs, of course, as I say, UFOs as a phenomenon, as a historical phenomenon, has they're not really accepted or embraced by official culture. They're a fringe thing. Mm-hmm. And so with that in mind, when Hollywood, uh, the most pervasive medium of our era, uh, kind of popularizes 
previously fringe subcultural ideas, it does throw it does so through um, the science fiction genre, which is innately fantastical, and the medium itself of cinema is also fan- fantastical. Right. And so, we, so we associate whatever it depicts with forms of public fantasy. So therefore, UFOs, because we don't know anything about them anyway, or because we, uh, the only things we know about them is is you know, if you, the only thing you're going to know about a UFO is if you go and buy a UFO book, you have to do some specialist research on the subject to understand. Right, it's all con- con- conjecture. But most people don't have that. Most people don't have the inclination or, or even the knowledge that, that this information is available. And so the only knowledge or understanding that they have of this historically real phenomenon comes to them through the lens of of cinema through a fantastical medium and therefore whatever it depicts something that's inherent inherently fantastical on the surface ufos are of course absolutely fictionalized through cinema um, but at the same time they're actualized because whatever cinema depicts on some level is is kind of embedded into our popular consciousness and seems somehow real to us that's the effect that cinema has no matter what it depicts it's somehow just through the just through the process of being um screened it's I mean uh, yeah real. Uh, particularly with live action special effects and stuff when you see it as compared to when you're watching a cartoon or something when mm. you when you watch a movie um, and especially when they use practical effects now too it seems like all of a sudden everything feels more real than it's when it's just computer effects it just has a different impact on our brain well what cinema does is it can is it as I say you know, it narrativizes and it contextualizes events debates and processes that constitute uh frustratingly non-narrative world you know life rarely makes sense but movies usually do and and we take comfort in that but therein lies the problem because movies aren't real life they're you know they're reflections of it snapshots of it simulations of it you know they're, they're skewed and distorted through the ideological framework of the people who've made them mm-hmm. and so we're constantly we live in this hyper real world where things are simultaneously real and unreal at the same time and and there's no there's no distinction anymore. We don't really even care about the distinction anymore. And so that makes UFOs problematic because they are inseparable now from the medium of cinema and, and always have been because I say that the modern phenomenon began in 1947 and Hollywood's depictions of it began just three years later in 1950. So the two have always been in, inseparable. And and that's what I try to do in my research is to try and sort the fact from the fantasy wherever possible. Ultimately, it's not entirely possible. <laughs> right. It's, but it's interesting to try. To follow up a little bit with what we were talking about a minute ago, is that, you know, we talked about UFOs were very, I mean, it's still a popular thing, alien invasions, and uh, I mean, especially during the Cold War, we, we talked about that. Um, do you think the focus has changed as the uh, bad guys, you know, quote unquote bad guys to Western culture went from being communists to terrorists? Has that, like, you know, when we talk about disinformation or even just the way that, you know, UFOs are depicted in the in the cultural lens of the kind of people that we are conditioned to see as the other i'm just wondering if that has changed our perception or how hollywood treats alien invasion movies and stuff i've got a whole chapter on alien invasion specifically looking at hollywood's looking at hollywood's depictions of alien invasion and the aliens invasion strategies and again i look at the idea of, of these being communist allegories during the cold war and then for example, with Spielberg's War of the Worlds reboot in uh, 2005, that was, of course, a terrorist movie. You know, there's mm-hmm. even a, a line of dialogue in there saying, is it terrorists when the aliens first strike? So it's hardly subtle. And, of course, Spielberg stated publicly that the imagery in the film was intentionally reminiscent of that scene as the Twin Towers fell on 9-11. And so certainly, uh, and then, you know, you had signs, um, Shyamalan's, uh, alien invasion movie. Yeah, brilliant, uh, brilliant movie right up to the end. In 2000, <laughs> yeah, water intolerant aliens invading Earth. Oops. Um, <laughs> That's a spoiler alert for a 15 year old movie. Oh well. <laughs> Everyone's seen that film. Oh uh, well, yeah, but we don't reveal how that how that how the water kills them. That's the. <laughs> Oh, it's so dumb, it deserves to be ruined. I know, um, I know, I know, because it's really um, good up to that point. Yeah, there's some good stuff in it. Um, so, But that, again, that was, again, that, that had overtones of, 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 of post-9-11 fears, you know, the, the, the family home was all of a sudden under threat. And, uh, uh, you know, and again, this is extended to 2005 with War of the Worlds and, and beyond. And certainly you can look at them like that, and, and obviously that's intentional. The, the War of the Worlds... Um, the political angle from with the War of the Worlds is, of course, that the U.S. military supported that film, and they ah. had 
had involvement in that film. And so, of course, if you're flagging up terrorist threats, that's, of course, going to be um, useful to the military, you know, because, again, it plays to it plays to recruitment and because uh, that's the goal of ultimately the goal of of, of um of military involvement in the filmmaking process is to boost recruitment and retention of personnel within the armed forces to propagandize essentially but they would refer to it as kind of soft propaganda I mean they wouldn't use the propaganda propaganda term because it's a dirty term right you know, other countries propagandize right but um, you know no one's no one's home country propagandizes other countries propagandize but we're just talking about emergency preparedness right it's it's the propaganda but but i mean <laughs> um yeah so you got war of the world spielberg and then you had other enemy nations or perceived enemy nations flagged up in in films uh, in the new millennium uh, in transformers in transformers dark of the moon for example which is 2011 you've got dialogue almost certainly written or encouraged by department of defense referring to uh, north korea and iran and nuclear sites in those countries and how they must be taken out and they pose a threat etc etc and this you know these are films which were given total full cooperation from the department of defense and again which not coincidentally advance the myth of cooperation between American national security forces and extraterrestrials. Pretty much any every film that the Department of Defense has lent its support to in the last couple of decades, uh, in terms of UFO movies, have at their core, at the core of the narrative, uh, uh, had this idea of cooperation and mutual treaties between between uh, aliens and and elements within the U.S. government. Now. To me, that's not kind of that's not really coincidental, right? Of course, you know. And this began with the, with the Stargate TV show, um, in about 1998, when the Department of Defense decided to lend their full support to that. And again, that was properly an extension of everything that was sown in the 1980s, where you've got grey aliens working alongside elements within the U.S. military. They've got reverse-engineered technology. They're using it to, you know, for the benefit of all mankind. Mm -hmm. You're kind of manipulating perceptions of official involvement or interest in this field. And it's kind of a self, self-serving mythology, but it's also a mythology that acts in a psychological warfare way as well to you know to, to scare other nations it's just, I mean it, it, this is not to say that other nations will watch Stargate and think oh man that's, right oh <laughs> MacGyver's coming for us uh, right you know <laughs> But it's a it, it's a subtle continuation, arguably, of of a strategy that was enacted a couple of decades previous. I just think it's fascinating the idea like I mean the idea of the you know whatever quote unquote bad guy we're up against that you know we can find a way to use these science fiction and horror tropes to kind of reinforce, you know, a political agenda through them. Yeah, I mean, and it's it's not just through sci-fi as well. I mean, um, there's been a number of excellent books um, written on the subject of military uh, involvement in the entertainment industry um, and CIA involvement in the entertainment industry. And, um, you know, they, they, they're interested in all genres, um, so, you know, all kinds of genres that you would never even expect would, would be suitable to you know, for propaganda, um, you know, the, the Department of Defense has been involved in Sabrina the Teenage Witch. And, <laughs> okay. Right? Any kind of opportunity that they get to, well, I mean, look, to, to, to sell their message, to, to boost recruitment and, and retention of personnel, etc., they will use that uh, regardless of genre, regardless of medium. Sure. And, Computer games is the is the is you know video games is the is the new frontier for that, um, because that's interactive, not just passive. It's an interactive experience rather than a passive visual one. But uh, but yeah, no, cinema continues to be to be viewed as a, as a great conduit for for information, disinformation, propaganda, recruitment, etc., etc. Um, it molds people's minds. It's it's pervasive. It's hugely influential. Right. And it's a kind of mystical medium. Still, it has this power to transport us. You know, to other realms of perception, it detaches us from our sense of everyday reality. And well, and it, and it, it sometimes it runs our lives. You know, I could I find myself reading about Star Trek for two and a half hours, like just in the middle of the afternoon. I'm like, oh my god, what happened to my day? And mm. you realize just the kind of power that a you know a, a TV show or a movie can have on you, where you can just read other people's comments on it, and that can take up you know <laughs> take up hours of your life that you didn't realize you were giving over to it. Mm. Well, the other thing is, as I say, I should keep emphasizing this idea that the the power of cinema ultimately lies in its its um, capacity to 
to narrativize, you know, to, to provide a narrative and context to events and processes and debates that otherwise are very hard to comprehend in our everyday reality. Um, sure. Like how many angels can dance on the head of a pin or whatever? Well, I'm particularly interested in, in, in this in, in the context of historical events or, or phenomena. So, you know, if I say the word Titanic, what do you think of? Oh, I just, I saw Kate Winslet standing at the, right. <laughs> at the bow of the ship. I don't think about the crash anymore. You, right. The, you know, there's, there's going to be almost no one alive today who thinks, who, who, who has any other image of Titanic other than the, the billion, the, you know, the $2 billion movie. Right. Right. That film has become the event. Uh, and, and our understanding of the Titanic tragedy has been really shaped by James Cameron. No, that's that's a good way to put it. Because a lot of times when you when you talk about D Day, Saving Private Ryan, you know, Saving Private, this is another example. Literally, this is an example I've used in the past. Saving Private Ryan. You can't if you think if you say D Day landings, I, I you know I challenge anyone kind of um, under the age of I don't know anyone who's grown up with in the generation of Saving Private Ryan, like in the cinemas, which is nineteen ninety eight. Anyone who's seen that film, it's erasable from your from your unerasable from your mind. You know, you, uh, it it just it's embedded there. And if you say D-Day landings, images of Save It Private Ryan come into your head. First thing that comes in here, absolutely. Right, and if you say you know gangsters, Italian American gangsters, you're going to think of Goodfellas or The Godfather. Mm-hmm. You know, so something rich cultural, political history and events has simplified and been contextualized and narrativized into this iconography essentially through cinema, and that's great and magical but it's also problematic when you're trying to you know sort fact from fiction in a historical way and especially when it comes to phenomena and events that officially don't exist or haven't happened and so they kind of feed into each other you know i was kind of thinking about this yesterday because i was thinking about our interview and i I was doing some reading on cults as you do and so i i was reading about heaven's gate Mm -hmm. and if those people hadn't seen like Close Encounters of the Third Kind or something like that, would they really believe that aliens were going to come and pick them up if they, you know, if they poisoned themselves when the comet came by? I think the short answer to that is probably yes, they would probably have done that anyway because I, I've never bought into the idea that, that you are, that movie, like, so it's hard to, so movies are, are hugely influential in kind of a macro way, but there's very little evidence to suggest that any one movie can directly influence the behavior of an individual or a group of individuals. Um, if you are inclined to do something crazy, you're going to do it whether you've seen a movie or played a, t- or played a video game. Right. You know, I mean, the key word there was cult. And already there, you, you refer, <laughs> you're, talk, you're, talk, you're talking about brain, you're talking about brainwashing in an organized way. Um, and, and a movie is going to be neither here nor there uh, when it comes to the decisions that are being made by a cult. Um, but, as I say, you know, movies do influence uh, our perceptions and our uh, assumptions, if not our actions. That's a good way to put it. I think that's a good note to end on, because I could probably talk to you about UFOs and movies and stuff uh, <laughs> for, for way longer than I could just read about Star Trek. So, Robbie, where can people find the book uh, and they can, they can pick it up and get a copy for themselves? Because everybody's going to want to read this book, I think. Oh, great. It's uh, available on Amazon. You know, you can get it through any major international uh, seller online. It's uh, Barnes & Noble, Amazon, all that kind of stuff. So if you just, you know, it's, it's available on Amazon, US, UK, Europe. Um, uh, it's called Silver Screen Sources, Sorting Fact from Fantasy and Hollywood UFO Movies. And uh, you can find more information on this few articles um, a huge list of UFO movies that I discuss and other things on my website which is just silverscreensources.uk and we're going to put a link to that in the show notes uh, and I encourage everybody to go check it out because it's really a fascinating topic and uh, the book's just released so you can be the smartest one of all your friends who love UFOs and pick it up right away so uh, thanks very much for joining us today Robbie we really appreciate it Uh, pleasure thanks very much Pop culture can have a big effect on our belief system. And a lot of times movies, even more so than books, because our visual sense is tied very tightly to our interpretation of reality. And that effect is the inspiration for today's song called Seeing is Believing. Disinformation 
to today's episode. You can find us online at othersidepodcast.com. Until next time, see you on the other side. Alien superpowers?